0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Surveillance Report 67, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news. This report will recap some of the most notable events in the last week, including some updates on the Log4j vulnerability that I'm sure you've been hearing a ton about, the announcement of a Tor VPN, which we will get into, Google confirming that they will access your files, which I don't think anybody's really doubted, but you know, it's nice to have confirmation and much, much more. I am Nathan from The New Oil. This week, Henry is feeling a little bit under the weather, so send him your well wishes, and he will be back with us next week. This week for our affiliate link, we're going to bring you something we've never brought you before, and that is Orange website. This is a website hosting provider based out of Iceland. They run on green energy. They allow for a private sign up. They say they only need your email address. They accept Bitcoin payments, and they are a big advocate for freedom of speech. They post that all over their website when you read about them. Why are we advertising web hosting? Because this is something we haven't really talked about a lot, but we talk about email masking, you know, like simple login and stuff like that. Well, another really smart thing to do with your email is to have a custom domain for really important emails, like from your doctor or your mortgage or your rent, things like that. That way you never lose control of that domain. If for some reason a email provider shuts you out or a email forwarding provider shuts you out, you simply point the records at a new provider and everything continues to flow like normal doesn't require you to build a whole website and everything you just need that domain it's really nifty i highly encourage you guys to look into that and orange website is a really good choice for doing that and with that as always let's dive into our data breaches that we always always have this week we're going to start off with the credit card info of 1.8 million people that was stolen from a sports gear website multiple sports gear websites actually the data includes personal and credit card information like full name financial account number credit card and debit card number with cvv and the website account password the website's impacted were Tackle Warehouse, Running Warehouse, Tennis Warehouse, and Skate Warehouse. The details are very minimal at this point in time, but they're saying it appears to be database access as opposed to like card skimming or something like that. Account password, remember use card masking techniques, unique strong passwords on every single website. Our next data breach comes from the US state of Oregon where it says Oregon Medical Group notifies 750,000 patients of data breach. The Oregon Anesthesiology Group, OAG, said it suffered from a ransomware attack in July that led to the breach of sensitive employee and patient information. This affected 750,000 patients and 520 current and former employees. They actually only found out about this because the FBI recently raided a ransomware group and took some of their, their accounts and servers and stuff like that. And the FBI found some of these accounts in the ransomware group's files and contacted the OAG to let them know. Again, we don't have a lot of details, but they are believing that the ransomware attack was executed via a vulnerability in OAG's third-party firewall. So once again, we see an issue where a third-party system causes problems for everyone else. The impacted data includes names, addresses, dates of service, diagnosis, and procedure codes with descriptions, medical record numbers, insurance provider names, and insurance ID numbers. It may have also included names, addresses, social security numbers, and W-2 forms for employees. Remember to freeze your credit. The next story is state-sponsored hackers abuse Slack API to steal airline data. The attackers behind this are believed to be ITG-17, also known as Muddy Water. They are a state-supported Iranian threat actor. So they don't necessarily work for Iran, but, you know, they get support from Iran. They abused a newly discovered backdoor in the Slack API called Aclip. The article goes into really big detail on how that works if you're interested. They targeted an Asian airline that the article did not name and stole flight reservation data. I have a feeling they were probably looking for someone specific. This is something I actually learned recently. If you have a high threat model, like nation state threat model, book your flights last minute because that gives them less time to find your flight. Just for the record, the days are gone where booking your flight last minute was like a way to save money because. A lot of airlines have figured out that the only people who book flights last minute are like business people and people who really, really need that flight. But I mean, if your threat model is that high, that's a good technique to have in your pocket. Our last data breach story comes from Gumtree, who is one of the top 30 websites in the UK. From what I understand, they're a classified website, kinda like Craigslist here in the US. A researcher found that by hitting the F12 key, he was able to see seller personal information. This information included full names, usernames, account registration date, account type, email address, and postcode or GPS coordinates. That last one, in my opinion, is the most troubling. Defenses, use a VPN, use forwarding email addresses, use a fake name or a randomly generated username. That's something I don't know if we talked about before. Instead of picking a username that positively identifies me, like nbartram, for example, I will generate a username using my password manager. I'll use the passphrase, and I'll pick two random words, leopard iridescent, something like that, and that'll be my username. And I generate a new username for every single website. I highly encourage you to do that. With that, let's go into company news, and I'm going to start off with a quick update. So last week, we talked about a Google Pixel slash Microsoft Teams bug that prevented People with Pixels and Teams from being able to call 911. So first off, the bug has been fixed. However, if you still want to test that, this leads into my second point. I said that the way I would test your phone is to call 911 and explain that I read an article where my phone has a bug. I just wanted to make sure I can use it. And I, I told people I'm like, if you have a better idea, please let me know. Not surprisingly, people did have better ideas. <laughs> a couple people suggested that the better idea is call the non-emergency number first explain the situation. At that point in time, the dispatcher will let you know we're usually slow around this time. Go ahead and call around this time. So that way you're not clogging up the lines or they'll let you know the best procedure to test that. So thank you for the people in the comments who suggested that. That was a better idea. You are absolutely right. Now it's fixed. Go forth with this information and test it responsibly if you feel the need to. Moving on to other Google news, Google Calendar now lets you block invitation phishing attempts. So up until now, Google Calendar, when people would invite you to an event, it would kind of automatically add that event to your calendar. And some attackers figured out a way to use that for phishing. Google has finally allowed you to change the settings so that you can be more selective on which events are automatically added to your calendar. Needless to say, we do not encourage you guys to use Google, but sometimes you have no choice, like we use it at my day job. So if you do use Google for whatever reason, be sure to check on this setting and disable that so that it doesn't automatically add things and you have to choose to add them to your calendar. Our last Google story comes from Google Drive. The headline says Google Drive could start locking your files. This title's a little bit misleading, but it's still worth knowing about. I'm going to read the quote. Google has announced a new policy for cloud storage service Drive, which will soon begin to restrict access files deemed to be in violation of the company's policies. It will restrict access for other people. So in other words, you can't share these files if they determine that these files are against policy you will still have access to them they're not going to delete them they're not going to stop you from accessing them but you won't be able to share them and other people won't be able to access them continuing the quote in the policy document google explains that it may make quote exceptions based on artistic educational documentary or scientific considerations unquote there is a review process if you think they've unreasonably locked your stuff and you say well i want to share this they haven't really been super transparent i know very surprising from google about how long this review will take, what they're gonna review for, or even how they handle misclassifications. Henry pointed out the good reminder here is that Google has access to all of your files in Drive, and this is them admitting it. So personally, I wouldn't trust them, especially with more sensitive stuff. I can't believe that there are companies that just have a Google sheet full of passwords and stuff like that. I've seen it multiple times. I know it's a thing. This is your call to move to -to end-to-end cloud providers. TechLore has a whole video on them. There's some really good choices out there. With that, we will move on to Apple, who has removed all references to their controversial child sexual abuse material scanning feature from their child safety webpage. I'm going to quote the article. Apple has quietly nixed all mentions of CSAM from its child safety webpage, suggesting its controversial plan to detect child sexual abuse images on iPhones and iPads may hang the balance following significant criticism of its methods. Unfortunately, this article was updated at the bottom. They said that in a statement to The Verge, Apple has not changed their plans. Their spokesman said they're still going to roll it out. They're just taking more time to ensure that they do it right. Uh, Those are my quotes, not theirs. I would say keep pushing because maybe they are reconsidering and they just don't want to admit it. There is some good news, though. iOS 15.2 is out and it brings with it the app privacy report. I've mentioned this in a previous episode. I was talking about it and I said that I look at it. and It was kind of hard to read. It was kind of like reading a server log. But with this new update, it's actually really cool. They have overhauled it. So now it's very easy to read you do still have to do a little bit of research. So basically what it does is it shows you like, these are the apps on your phone and how often they call out to other apps. It doesn't really tell you what those calls are for. It just says like, hey, Spotify called this IP address, this many times or this link this many times. So you kind of have to go and figure out what those links are and if you want to block them, but it is a massive improvement in terms of easy to read. I do want to note iOS 15.2 also did come with one of Apple's more controversial features, which is the communication safety feature. This is the one where it will blur sensitive photos for children. So first of all, this has to be enabled. It is not on by default. You have to designate that the account on the phone is a minor account. You have to turn this feature on. It will blur sensitive photos. It will alert the child that the photo may be sensitive, and it will offer them resources, including the ability to text an adult and say, hey, I got this picture. I did a little bit of digging. As far as I can tell, again, this is opt in. It does not alert the parent unless the child chooses to do so. And it only works with the stock messaging app. It also only works on device. Allegedly, for the record, obviously, I'm not like an Apple programmer. I don't know what Apple's codes do. But from what I can tell, it doesn't submit anything to Apple. It doesn't do any checking this picture against a hash like the the other stuff it's just using machine learning on the device to say hey this might be potentially sensitive are you sure you want to look at this I'm not saying that I think this is a good thing and I'm not trying to defend it. What I am trying to defend is I know that there's going to be people out there who are like, well, I'm not going to update because I don't want that on my phone, which I understand. I don't want it on my phone either. But given the fact that updates also frequently come with security updates, I think the lesser of two evils is to go ahead and update this. Because theoretically, if you never designate your phone as a minor and you never enable this feature, you don't really have anything to worry about. Our next story comes from Facebook and it's weirdly positive. It says Facebook disrupts operations of seven surveillance for hire firms. Quoting the article, Facebook has disrupted the operations of seven different spyware-making companies, blocking their internet infrastructure, sending cease and desist letters, and banning them from its platform. Those surveillance providers are based in China, Israel, India, and North Macedonia. They targeted people in over 100 countries around the world on behalf of their clients. Unquote. Specifically, they were targeting activists, journalists, and minorities. The companies claimed that they were using the surveillance to catch dangerous criminals and terrorists. Facebook disagrees. Our next story comes from Amazon. It's really quick, it says AWS down again, outage impacts Twitch, Zoom, PlayStation Network, Hulu, others. Amazon had another brief outage for a couple hours this week. There's no real lesson here. This is just news that we wanted to keep you guys updated about. All right, a couple of quick Microsoft stories. First of all, Microsoft has rolled out end-to-end encryption for Teams. Unfortunately, this is only available to enterprise users and it must be enabled by the IT admins. Really quick, Microsoft has issued Patch Tuesday for December 2021, which includes six zero day fixes and 67 flaws fixed. Patch Tuesday is the second Tuesday of every month and that's when Microsoft pushes out pretty much all their updates. I just like to remind everyone, if you're using Windows, make sure you check for updates. Unfortunately, Patch Tuesday also came with something negative for Windows 11 users, and that is that they have, once again, disabled changing the default browser. So this is kind of an ongoing thing. In Windows 11, Microsoft really only wants you to use Edge, and Firefox went out of their way to find a workaround that allowed you to make Firefox your default browser, and Microsoft shut that down, so now Edge is the only browser again. The article does say there's a program called MS Edge Redirect, I don't know anything about this program. This is not an endorsement. I'm just letting you know. One thing they cite as a downside is it has to run in the background 24 seven. Currently, if you're a Windows 11 user, you may want to look into that. Again, I haven't looked into it. I'm not vouching for it, but that might be one way to get around it. Let's talk about Grindr. Grinder is a dating slash hookup app for gay, bi, trans, and queer people, and they have been fined 7.1 million US dollars by Norway's Data Protection Authority for passing user data onto advertisers without consent. The fine was originally $12.1 million, but it was reduced partially because the company actually makes less money than they said they did. And these fines are based on uh, percentages of global income. It was also reduced because the company has actually implemented a few fixes. I don't think the article went into detail on what those were. Be careful when you're using these dating apps. The dating app scene, the app scene in general is such a mess right now, but especially dating apps, you give so much sensitive data to dating apps and companies unfortunately really abuse and take advantage of that. Quoting the article, it's also worth noting that this investigation was limited to the process grinder used to obtain consent at the time of the complaint. So it's not so much that they collected the data, it's how they were collecting the data, and they say that they've changed their process. The decision does not include any requirements that grinder or their ad partners delete unlawfully obtained data, but that could change in the future, and the ad partners are also being investigated, and those investigations are currently ongoing. Our next story comes from Clear, which is a biometrics company who is best known for using biometric authentication in airports and sports stadiums. They are now attempting to break into the retail market to help people bypass long lines. They openly admit that they are just trying to get people comfortable with the idea of biometrics. Again, one of those stories, be aware of it when you go out in public, these things are becoming more and more mainstream. Another really quick story, cyber attack on BHG opioid treatment network disrupts patient care. I don't really know if there's a lesson here. I just wanted to share this story because I feel like it's worth knowing about. I'm sure you guys know, but like cyber attacks are becoming increasingly common and disruptive, and it's just something worth having on your radar. Our last company story comes from Henry. It says after US ban and Apple action, Pegasus spyware maker NSO running out of cash. So I mentioned in a previous report that NSO's future is looking really uncertain. And I think I even mentioned that one of the articles I read said they might run out of money by the end of the year, and this is a more formal piece that really goes in depth on how screwed NSO really is right now. A quote from the article, Bloomberg reports that the company is now running out of cash and is exploring exit options. Wow, I'm not gonna lie to you guys, Henry threw this one in when I asked him to check the notes and I did check this, but I missed that last part, is exploring exit options. Wow, things are really bad for them. <laughs> Continuing the quote, the report claims that Pegasus would be repurposed from hacking smartphones to protecting them. Henry put in the notes, he said, good riddance, and I agree. I find it very hard to find any sympathy for this company that's about to go under world's smallest violin, man. With that, let's move on to research. We're gonna start with some updates on the ongoing, still dominating the headlines, Log for Shell and Log for J. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, check last week's surveillance report. We kind of gave a little bit of a story to it. Last week, it had just started to come out, so we didn't really know a whole lot. And we promised more updates this week. So here's what we know now. We know that the attacks began as early as December 1st, according to researchers at Cloudflare and Cisco. We know that so far it is being exploited in the wild to steal data, including credentials, to install crypto miners and to launch ransomware. We know that a second vulnerability has been discovered and a patch was issued, but this patch and the previous patch are incomplete. And we see this a lot, actually. This is really common that like somebody will find a major vulnerability and the company will issue a patch and then somebody will go like, hey, good patch. Here's the way around your patch. Just kind of expect that, that it's it's probably going to be several patches before we get a good handle on this thing because that seems to be the case a lot of the time CISA, which is the american like computer security administration they have ordered all government agencies including civilian agencies who work for the government to patch by christmas eve bleeping computer has published a list of vendors and products that are vulnerable who have published advisories on what to do so if you're kind of sitting here and you're like well is there anything i can do other than twiddle my thumbs and wait go check out this list and if you have any of the products on this list Check their advisories and see if you can implement any of their recommendations. And this happened right before I started recording, actually. Apache has released another patch for Log4J. Like I said, every time these patches come out, expect that somebody's going to find a workaround. But we'll see how that one fares and we will let you know next week. Our next research article is called Bugs in Billions of Wi-Fi Bluetooth Chips Allow Password and Data Theft. Quoting the article, researchers at the University of Darmstadt, Brescia, CNIT, and the Secure Mobile Networking Lab have published a paper that proves it's possible to extract passwords and manipulate traffic on a Wi-Fi chip by targeting a device's Bluetooth component. Basically, modern devices have separate components, like you have a separate Wi-Fi chip, a separate Bluetooth chip, but they do share certain resources, like the antenna or the spectrum, which is what allows for these attacks, because they can get into those shared resources and then branch out from there. The attacks allow for remote code execution, data leak, and denial of service and can be executed over the air. So the good news is there's an initial attack that you have to do in order to do everything else. Like it's kind of getting your foot in the door. The article describes this attack as quote, not very common, but they do point out that there is precedent. So if I understand the article correctly, this is probably not something you need to be too worried about, but it is a thing and you should have it on your radar. The article goes on to explain that updates are very slow for these types of attacks because there's a lot of reasons. Some of these devices no longer get updates. Some of the fixes require hardware fixes, so it's not as easy as just pushing out a patch and now you're fixed. Like now they need to like redesign the phone. They are doing that for the record. They are slowly rolling out these fixes, but again, because of these difficulties, it's gonna be a while before those fixes make it out to everybody. In the meantime, the mitigations they recommend, delete any unnecessary Bluetooth device pairings, remove unused Wi-Fi networks, and when you're in public, try to use your cell data instead of the Wi-Fi. Our next study says, large-scale fishing study shows who bites the bait more often. This is just one of those uh, really interesting papers that has a lot of statistics. It was conducted by ETH Zurich and an unnamed company. Participants were not informed. They targeted 14,733 participants over 15 months. Again, there's tons and tons of statistics in here. I highly encourage you guys to go read the article. But here are some of the interesting things that jumped out at me. Younger and older people had the highest click rate. When they say younger and older, based on the chart, I think they meant 18 to 19 and 50 to 59. Ages 20 through 29 had the lowest. And actually, ages 18 to 19 had really, really high click rates. This is kind of anecdotal. I grew up with Windows 95 and Windows Vista came out when I was in high school. So I grew up knowing how to troubleshoot a computer, even just simple things like learning how to turn it off and turn it back on, learning how to clear the cache, learning how to use the, the command line for simple things. Those were kind of things that were just expected of you back then. Whereas kids these days are growing up in technology that just works, which I think is great for accessibility. But the problem is it kind of robs people of understanding the technology itself. I was at a conference one time and one of the keynote speakers straight up said that. He had like statistics and research to back him up. I don't remember the numbers, but I remember him saying kids, for example, when they go to YouTube, they don't think about the tablet that's connected to the Wi-Fi and the router that's connecting to Google and pulling the video from the servers and somebody uploaded that video and somebody's maintaining these servers and there's a physical computer somewhere that's storing the video. Like they don't think about any of that because they're just so naturally immersed in this world where Again, technology just works. They don't have to think about it. So all they know is like I open the YouTube app, I click the button and I watch the video. So unfortunately that's kind of coming back to bite us. Now younger kids are not familiar with things like phishing and malware and things like that. They're just not as tech savvy as you would expect them to be having grown up around technology their whole lives. Anyways, I found that interesting and I wanted to share that with you guys. And it seems like this study is backing all that up. Moving on to some of the other interesting findings, gender made no difference, everybody was equally likely. People who fell for the phishing attacks fell for it multiple times, about 30% of the time, actually, they fell for it again. They also found that training made very little difference despite other research saying that it does. One interesting thing is the article speculates that crowdsourcing the detection of phishing is very possible because 90% of the employees reported these suspicious emails. Whereas systems only caught 68% of the phishing emails, 79% if you include spam. Yeah, the system can only block so many emails. It's really up to people to be alert and be aware and maybe even report them and let people know. Again, this article is just full and full of statistics. I highly encourage you to go look at it. It was very fascinating. And there's some really good infographics that make it easy to read. The next article says, a deep dive into NSO zero-click iMessage exploit remote code execution. It's kind of a wordy title, but the title says it all. This is a deep dive from Google's Project Zero, which is their... I believe it's the research department that like looks for malware and stuff like this. They look at forced entry, which is a zero click exploit from NSO group, and they do a real deep, deep dive into it. If you've ever been interested in like, how does this stuff work? How does it get access to my device? Anything like that? This is a very fascinating read that I encourage you to check out. With that, we will move into politics. We will start off in Worcester, Massachusetts, who has banned the use of controversial facial recognition technology. I'm gonna quote the article, Worcester has become the eighth municipality in Massachusetts to bar government agencies from acquiring or using facial recognition technology. That's pretty much it. That's just a good privacy win. Unfortunately, in Boston, Massachusetts, police bought spy tech with a pot of money hidden from the public. Unfortunately, this is not the first story we've covered like this. I guarantee you it won't be the last. Not to editorialize, but this is a big thing that upsets me is I don't like that my tax money can be spent without my consent on things that I'm not aware of, on things that I can't see the source code, on things that I can't even know exist. I have a friend who's in law enforcement and I asked him one time, I'm like, hey, he doesn't work in my town for the record. I was like, hey, do you think I could submit a freedom of information request to find out if my town uses stingrays? And he straight up told me, yeah, you can, but they'll probably won't answer you. They'll probably say it's like sensitive secrets and they can't tell you. I don't like that my tax money can be used to buy things that I'm not even allowed to know if you have them or not. Anyways, personal opinions aside. Yes, it is unfortunately common for police departments around the country to buy surveillance technology with taxpayer money and just not tell anybody. And here's the story of Boston doing that. If you wanna learn more, I recommend checking out the article. Okay, next, let's talk about January 6th. This story is an excellent example of why privacy matters. So the headline says, Capital Rioters Social Media Posts Influencing Sentencing. What happened is a lot of the people who were present at January 6th made posts on social media, either announcing their intention to go, or after January 6th is over with, they were basically celebrating on social media. And now it's impacting their sentencing. For those who don't know, in the US legal system, the jury decides if you're guilty or not, but the judge decides the sentencing. And the judge takes in a lot of factors, like are you a repeat criminal? How severe was the crime? Was the crime premeditated? Do you show remorse? That's a big one. Like If you show remorse, the judge is more likely to go easier on the sentencing. And the judge has basically straight up said to all of these people, you know you're making it almost impossible for me to go easy on you, right? Because you went and did this thing and now you're posting on Facebook and being like, woohoo, that was awesome. The reason I think this is a good example of why privacy matters is many of the people who were involved in January 6th think that they did nothing wrong, but the law thinks they do. And now their social media posts are being weaponized against them for something that again, they feel they did nothing wrong. This is why privacy matters. And you can't take it back. People who are deleting their posts are actually adding on the additional charge of destruction of evidence. (laughs) What you post today could come back to bite you tomorrow, even if you think that you're doing the right thing. I just wanna make it clear, I'm not taking a political side. I have my opinions on January 6th. Believe me, I have very strong opinions about January 6th. I'm not trying to tell you whether it was right or wrong. This is not the place for that. And I'm certainly not trying to tell people how to get away with crimes. I'm just saying one of the most common things we hear with privacy is, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Someone out there may disagree with you and it may come back to bite you. Moving on, the Department of Homeland Security has announced the Hack DHS bug bounty program for vetted researchers. Quoting the article, the new bug bounty program will use a platform developed by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, and will be monitored by the DHS Office of the Chief Information Officer. The article goes on to say, researchers who report security vulnerabilities as part of the program will be able to win monetary rewards of up to $5,000 depending on the flaw's severity. The DHS will verify all reported security flaws within 48 hours and fix them in 15 days or more depending on the bug's complexity. They didn't really expand on what they meant when they said vetted researchers. I guess that just means you have to use their platform. Our next story says U.S. and Australia enter cloud act agreement for cross-border access to electronic evidence. Long story short, this gives the Australian law enforcement the right to request data from U.S. companies and vice versa. U.S. law enforcement can request data from Australian companies. This applies to, quote, serious organized crime, terrorism, ransomware attacks, critical infrastructure, sabotage and child sexual abuse, unquote. They have reached an agreement, but it must undergo parliamentary and congressional review in both countries, so both of the governments have to formally acknowledge it. Let's move over to the EU. EU Parliament adopts Digital Services Act, but concerns persist. The European Parliament's Internal Market and Consumer Protection Committee has adopted the Digital Services Act, DSA, proposal by 36 votes to 7 against and 2 abstaining. This voting was required to move the legislation forward and to place the amended proposal on the January 2022 calendar for negotiations with EU government. So again, this is another thing that still has to go through governmental review, but that was a step forward. The article says the main goal of the DSA is to empower EU regulators to control large internet platforms and impose stricter mechanisms for removing fake news and abusive content. There's quite a bit that goes into this, but there were a few things that were privacy specific. They are the prohibition of dark patterns, which is, I think we've talked about that before. For example, in order to delete your Amazon account, you have to contact Amazon directly. That is intentional. They do not want to make it easy to click a button and say, okay, your account's gone. They want to make you jump through hoops to try and keep you there. So that's a dark pattern. It also includes more transparency about the use of data for targeted advertising and more choice over algorithmic ranking like your social media feeds. Of course, as the headline says, it is not without problems. The EFF points out that there's kind of a lack of enforcement. They're also concerned that it basically gives authorities a blank check to access sensitive user data under the guise of this act. In the UK, says MPs charged with analyzing online safety bills say end-to-end encryption should be called out as a, quote, specific risk factor. The Parliament's Joint Committee on the Online Safety Bill has published a, quote, manifesto with their findings. In short, they want the bill to do more. They don't think it's comprehensive enough. Again, there's a lot that goes into this, but here's the privacy-specific stuff. They want end-to-end encryption identified as a, quote, risk factor, and they want facial recognition to verify the age of porn watchers. That one in particular concerns me because I'm sure you guys are with me. I've met a lot of people who don't look their age. When I was in college, I sat behind a girl who was 40, and I swear to God, if I was a cashier and she was trying to buy alcohol, I would have carted her without a second thought. So the only thing I can think is they must be using facial recognition to verify your identity. And now you're tying your identity to your porn habits, which just no, I don't think I have to explain why that's a bad idea. Just no, that one in particular really like made me pause and like, what? And then of course, the article goes on to explain there's a lot of concern about the impact that it would have on free speech in general. We'll keep you guys updated on that as we hear more. So this next article comes from, from what I can tell, it's like a website for open government contracts that are like open to the public for people to bid on. And it says operator based location data and services for public health mobility analysis. This comes from Canada, where the Public Health Agency of Canada requires access to cell tower and operator location data that is secure, processed, and timely, in addition to being adequately vetted for security, legal, privacy, and transparency considerations to assist in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So basically they're trying to get a contract for cell phone tracking for COVID. If, if I understand this correctly. Canada, that's a thing. Click on the link, check this out. There's actually contact information for the official who posted this bid. Politely, please do not be a jerk because it doesn't do you any favors. Email this guy and be like, dude, we're past this. So we have some updates on Clearview AI that come from multiple countries. The first comes from Canada, where three provinces, British Columbia, Alberta, and Quebec, have ordered Clearview to stop collecting, using, and disclosing images of people without consent and to delete images and biometric data collected without permission. They have also required Clearview to stop offering services in those provinces. And best of all, the article says these are binding orders. So. This isn't a recommendation. Clearview has to do this. I mean, of course, they can fight back, which they are. Clearview is claiming that they can't do that. They say, we don't have any way of determining who is a citizen of your area and who is not. So we don't have any way of ensuring that we can't collect data. So just let us keep collecting everybody. France has issued a similar order. You got to delete all your data and stop operating here. And Clearview's response to that is they're trying to claim we're not bound by GDPR because we don't have any offices in your countries. Our next story comes from South Korea. South Korea's testing AI-powered facial recognition to track COVID-19 cases. This is starting in January in Busan. As usual, I apologize if I butchered that, which is one of the country's most densely populated cities on the outskirts of Seoul. They will use AI algorithms and facial recognition tech with more than 10,820 CCTV cameras to track infected people who they come into contact with and if they wore masks. Currently, there are no plans to take it to a national level. The goal is to make the tracing system faster and more efficient. Right now, they're still doing a lot of surveillance, but they're manually verifying it. They're basically not using any AI. They're doing it all by hand. So they're claiming that this will make things, if I did my math right, like 60 times faster. I apologize if my math was off there. I went to public school. There are, of course, privacy concerns. The government is claiming that anyone who's not being tracked gets their faces blurred out. So therefore, it's not a privacy issue. But obviously, the system still has to identify who you are and if you're being tracked in order to determine if they're going to blur you out. They also say that the patients have to give consent for this tracking, but they say the tracking can still work via silhouette and clothes. The article points out that there are other countries who have at very least experimented with facial recognition tracking for COVID, and that includes China, Russia, India, Poland, Japan, and, quote, several U.S. states. Our next story comes from India and concerns voter ID. Okay, I'm gonna need someone from India to explain this one to me, and then I'll update you guys next week. So the headline says new voting reforms may allow linking of Aadhaar with voter ID raising privacy concerns. So I do know Aadhaar is kind of like your national ID. This system is optional and it is opt-in. Basically what it does is it links your national ID with your voter ID. So if I understand this correctly, you can go to vote using your national ID instead of your voter ID. Here in America, that's the way it's always been. When I go to register to vote, I bring my ID and I show my ID and say, I wanna register. And they don't really record that information but they use it to verify me. And then when I go to the polls, if I don't bring my voter card, I can say, here's my name and date of birth, you can look me up. So I don't quite understand how do they verify you in india do they have another way of verifying that you are allowed to vote and you're eligible or for the record this is not me saying that the american system is better i understand there are many many privacy concerns with the way that voter registration works in america we actually saw that i think last year there was a disinformation campaign i believe from iran where they were getting the voter information of democrats and sending them emails and letters pretending to be a Trump supporter in their area and basically saying, if you don't vote for Trump, I'm gonna hurt you. I understand the concept of linking your voter ID with your real world identity does have privacy concerns. I guess I'm just not clear on how your voter registration system works in the first place if you never show your national ID in the first place. Anyways, that's the concern is if you're linking your real world identity with your voter ID, And making it public, there's going to be a lot of privacy concerns about potential backlash and political violence and things like that, which are very legitimate concerns, especially in countries where the government has a history of spying on political dissidents. Our last political story comes from Brazil, where the Ministry of Health was hit by a second cyber attack in less than a week. Title says it all, the first attack was three days prior to this attack. Fortunately, other than slowing down some operations, it seems like there was no data taken and the impact was relatively minimal at this time. Another more recent article suggests that in the ensuing investigation, the attack was likely executed via employee credentials that probably got leaked in a separate data breach or something like that. So remember, don't fall for phishing, use strong unique passwords. All that fun stuff. Let's move into free and open source software news. We're gonna start off with news from Signal and the first one is kind of a big deal this week. Signal now supports group audio and video calls of up to 40 people, four zero, four zero zero. That is a lot, that is so many. This is a highly, highly detailed article. Like they really, really go into detail. If you're interested in the technicals of how they made this possible and how they're still gonna protect your privacy with all this. Previously it was only five people in a call, now it's 40. Our next Signal story comes from Henry. He left this in the notes. He said, Signal has ARM64 native M1 support on Mac OS. Kinda. Last week, Henry complained about Signal not having ARM support. For those who don't know, there's two types of architecture. There's x86, I think it is which is traditional desktop laptop computers. And then there's ARM, which is typically used for mobile devices. These days, the lines are kind of blurring. Some Mac devices like laptops and and desktops now come with ARM architecture. But generally speaking, they have different trade-offs. Thank you to someone on Twitter who let us know that signal is starting to support arm actually on mac os they now have a native m1 program this is in beta use it at your own risk henry says he's been using it for the last week or so and he is seeing upwards of five times better efficiency in some situations but again notes that it is still in testing and he said now when is this coming out for windows and linux especially linux exclamation point exclamation point our next story comes from firefox where firefox has fixed password leaks via windows cloud clipboard feature Quoting the article, Mozilla has fixed an issue in its Firefox browser where usernames and passwords were being recorded in the Windows Cloud Clipboard feature in what the organization categorized as a severe security risk that could have exposed credentials to non owners whenever users copied or cut a password. Windows Cloud Clipboard is disabled by default, but once you enable it, if you choose to do that, it keeps a history. And that's where the issue is. If you copied a password in Firefox and it got saved to the cloud, it would be in that clipboard history which means people on other devices who have access to that cloud, like companies and organizations, could copy your passwords. Mozilla fixed this, and now that will no longer show up in your cloud clipboard history. Our next story is a quick one from Ubuntu. It says attackers can get root by crashing Ubuntu's account service. Account service is a D-Bus service that helps manipulate and query information attached to user accounts available on a device. That kind of went over my head. The important thing here says the bug was fixed in November and it applies to Ubuntu 21.10, Ubuntu 21.04 and Ubuntu 20.04 LTS. So if you're using any of those, be sure to update. This next story also comes from Henry. It says Leap is hiring for development of Tor VPN. And he said, we know what you're thinking. Let us explain. Leap is an open source project that aims to offer true transparency to the VPN space by essentially guaranteeing the servers are doing what they say they do, aka not keeping logs. Calyx VPN and RiseUp VPN both rely on Leap for their fully FOSS and trusted VPNs. This project, from what I was able to tell, seems like... They're doing really good work and they're they're trying to make VPNs more reliable and more transparent, which of course I'm totally in favor of because while I am not one of those, like all VPNs are honeypots, I do agree that a lot of them are scammy and untrustworthy. And I think it would be great to have something like this where you can easily tell who is and is not trustworthy. So the Tor project who are notoriously against VPNs are actually partnering with Leap to an extent to develop something called Tor VPN. We don't know the extent of the partnership, And we don't know much about VPN other than the name and that it is of course being endorsed by Tor themselves. We do know that they are hiring though for this project. So if you are interested, go ahead and check the sources, see if you meet the requirements for this position. And of course, as we learn more about this project, we will let you know. And our last bit of false news PeerTube tube version four has come out. There are a ton of changes. If you're interested, check out the sources for all the updates. There are changes to videos, live streams, bug fixes, and more. And I have to figure out how to update my instance. And with that, let's move into our final section. Misfits. We're gonna start with the Kronos ransomware attack, which may cause weeks of HR solution downtimes. Kronos is a workforce management and human resources provider who provides cloud-based solutions for managing timekeeping, payroll, employee benefits, analytics, and more. And that pretty much says it all. The real reason I wanted to share this is remember to have backups in place. And when we say backups, we usually think about data backups, but have you ever thought about life backups? If the company gets ransomware, do you have cash savings on hand? If your car breaks down, Do you have the funds to take an Uber? Or do you have a coworker nearby that you can get a ride with? Do you have a mechanic picked out that you trust? Because at least here in America, finding a trustworthy mechanic can sometimes be a bit of a challenge. This just goes for life in general. Always have a backup plan, especially as the world is getting more and more digital and more and more interconnected. Just do your best now to think about what could go wrong and how you can mitigate that if possible. Our next story says how expired web domains help criminal hackers unlock enterprise defenses. The title kind of says it all and how it happens is basically if a web domain expires, a criminal can buy that web domain and then pretend to be that person and gain access to accounts or maybe even start posing as that person and committing crimes, especially this week since we plugged Orange Website. This is something that's really important to think about. If you use custom domains, which I totally encourage you to do, be mindful of them. If that domain expires and somebody catches it before you do and buys it, They can do a password reset and now they've got your credentials. They could pretend to be you and email people and say bad things. If you use custom domains, be on top of those things. And if you ever let one go, make sure that you don't depend on it anymore, that you've really thought long and hard about it and all of that. Last but not least, we have a story from Proton that says how HTTPS keeps you safe, but not private. And this is just a really good read that I wanted to leave you guys with. I strongly encourage you to read this. Maybe I'm reading the room wrong. But I feel like in the privacy community, there's a lot of confusion over HTTPS specifically what it does and doesn't do in regards to privacy. How much can somebody see? What can people not see? Things like that. And this especially compounds when we start talking about the role that it plays in Tor. It can get very confusing very quickly. So I wanted to share this article with you guys because I think it may be helpful for some of you guys to learn a little bit more. And if you're new to this or you don't know anything about HTTPS, I highly encourage you to read this article because HTTPS is kind of one of the fundamental things in cybersecurity nowadays. And it's very good to have at least a basic understanding of it. And that was all of our news for this week. We had so many updates. We had Signal adding group calls. We had a bunch of political stuff that we will keep you guys updated on. The Log4J stuff, I'm sure we'll have more updates on. The Tor VPN, I know Henry is very, very excited about that. So we will definitely tell you more about that as we learn more. Make sure you are subscribed and paying attention and ready for the next episode. I wanna remind you again, our affiliate link that we're highlighting is Orange website. They are an Icelandic web hosting company, run on green energy, private signup, Bitcoin payments. Just remember, don't let your custom domains expire or attackers can make use of that. But otherwise, yes, I think it's very wise to have a custom domain or maybe even two or three, depending on your resources and your threat model to help maintain control of those email addresses. We want to thank you guys for listening to Surveillance Report. We are so happy to know that you're trying to stay safe out there. The last thing we want to ask of you, share the podcast around. Make sure you are subscribed. Give us a rating or a thumbs up. Leave a comment. We want privacy to reach as many people as possible, and you can help us do that. Thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.